Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. This week, we're going to dive in, so to speak, off the waters of Connecticut's coastline to explore Connecticut's extensive whaling industry. It was a critical part of the state's economy for 200 years, and the only remaining wooden whaling boat still afloat in the entire United States is the Charles W. Morgan. It's anchored at the Mystic Seaport Museum along the southeast Connecticut shoreline. Our guest, absolutely fabulous. She's an extremely experienced sailor. She has an extensive history with the Morgan. She's director of Yukon's Maritime Studies Program, as well as the Department of Marine Science, both based at the Avery Point campus off Groton. She's a professor of English and an internationally renowned expert on Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick. Mary Kay Burkaw Edwards of Mystic Seaport will be with us in just a second. This week's trivia question, if I am talking about Belltown, what Connecticut town am I referring to? We'll have the answer for you after the program, and it's also a clue to the subject of our next episode. And now, a whale of a story, Connecticut's seafaring past. This episode's about the whaling industry in Connecticut. Now, that's not to offend our friends in Massachusetts, where New Bedford has traditionally been considered the home of U.S. whaling operations. In fact, that's where the Charles W. Morgan whaling ship was built, and that's our focus today. But Connecticut was ranked second only to Massachusetts in importance in the whaling industry. Ships used to set sail out of primarily New London, but also Mystic, Stonington, Groton, and Old Saybrook to capture that much-sought-after whale oil and whale bone. Well, of all the wooden whaling ships ever built, and there were 2,700 of them, only one remains intact and afloat, and it's the Charles W. Morgan. It's on display at Chubb Wharf at the Mystic Seaport Museum in Mystic, Connecticut. Just a few facts and figures. The first voyage back in 1841, September, and that one would net investors today's equivalent of $1.8 million. She came into dock from her last voyage on May 28, 1921. She was in service 80 years, made 37 commercial voyages, brought home 55,000 barrels of whale oil, 150,000 pounds of whale bone, only old Ironsides, the USS Constitution, is older than the Morgan. Well, here to tell us the incredible story about the Morgan is Mary Kay Burkaw Edwards. She's been with Mystic Seaport for more than 45 years, serving as the head of a six-member group that set the sails on the Morgan, a service that ended only with the pandemic, and she still conducts demonstrations. She's also director of UConn's Maritime Studies Program, as well as the Department of Marine Science, both based at Avery Point in Groton. She's a full professor of English at UConn, and an internationally renowned expert on Herman Melville, author of probably the best and biggest fish story ever, Moby Dick. Let's start off talking about you and your childhood, which is remarkable in terms of the experience you yourself had on the ocean. When I was 16, my family uh, left on a voyage around the world, and we spent three and a half years at sea, uh, sailing from California, where I grew up, all around the world and back to California. And it was my father, mother, myself, who was 16, my sister was 15, and my brother was 10. And then when he, I was 20 when we got back. Did you have any crazy moments during that trip where, you know, you experienced some danger? 
we did, but I was, you know, I had such faith in my father that at the end of the voyage, once I said, I was never afraid. And my father said, you weren't. And I said, you were, because, you know, I had just such faith in him. And now that I'm a parent, I can totally imagine what it must have been like. But I was so young that I didn't realize it. But we went through a hurricane. Uh, We were at anchor, but it was still pretty scary. Lots of storms and gales, the typical problems that surround vessels out at sea. And of course, I have to ask you, did you ever see any whales? So we did, not as many as I would have liked, more pilot whales than any other type of whales. My father once saw sperm whales, but it was in the middle of the night and none of us saw them. But had I known that I was going to spend the rest of my life as a Melville scholar, I I would have been on more of a lookout for sperm whales, especially. Let me ask you about the whaling industry in general. I think most people don't understand how important it was to Connecticut's economy and as well to the entire uh, new United States economy. Starting in the early 1700s, both whale oil and whale bones were critical components for the country. Can you explain why that was? Often people think that whale oil was an most important for lighting. And it was certainly important for lighting. There were whale oil lamps. Street lights were often lit with whale oil. But the biggest use of it was for lubrication. So if you think of the 19th century as the Industrial Revolution, and you think of all those mills, those machines were lubricated with whale oil. It was only after 1859, with the discovery of petroleum in Pennsylvania, that the whaling industry sort of lessened because petroleum was easier to get out of the ground than it was to kill whales. But at that point, another product had become really important, and that was baleen. So baleen hangs from the mouths of many of the large whales. They use the baleen to filter out krill, the tiny little shrimp-like creatures that they eat. So they suck water into their mouths and then push the water out past the baleen and the little hairy fibers on the edge of it catch the krill and that's what they eat. And that baleen is made from keratin, just like your fingernails. So it was used for um, hoops and hoop skirts, for buggy whips, for collar stays. It was called the 19th century plastic because it was flexible. You know, it wasn't as stiff. How did the whaling community get whales from the ocean onto the ship and were they then sort of, I guess, dissected or whatever they did to them uh, on board the ship? They would have somebody up at the top of the mast looking out constantly for whales. And when they saw one, they'd cry out like, whale ho, there she blows. And then the whale boats, the small whale boats, which are between 25 and 30 feet long and manned with six people, would go rowing after the whales. And when they got close, they would throw a harpoon. And the harpoon didn't kill the whale. It just worked like a giant fish hook. And then the whale would tow the boat around until it was exhausted and then they would stab the whale through through the lungs, pretty grim, and kill it that way. And then the whales were towed back to the ship. And they didn't actually lift the whale onto the ship because it was just too heavy. The average whale was 40 to 60 tons. But they would leave the whale in the water and strip the blubber off, kind of like you cut skin off an apple or off an orange. And even just a single piece of blubber would weigh one ton. And that was brought on board the ship, cut into smaller pieces and cooked down into oil. And so that part of the process, uh, cooking it down into oil, actually occurred on the ship and then it was stored in barrels? 
I have stored in barrels, yes, right in the bottom of the ship. The Morgan, which was a totally average whale ship, could hold about the oil from roughly 60 whales, although sometimes there were far more if the whales were smaller. On a first voyage, they caught 77 whales and could hold about uh, 75,000 gallons of whale oil, roughly. Some of these trips lasted years. How do you do that? How do you keep all that on board from spoiling or whatever else might have happened to it? Once the blubber is rendered or kind of cooked down into oil, the oil doesn't go bad. Yeah, the average voyage was between two and five years, but uh, New London is actually famous for having the longest whaling voyage out ever. The Nile sailed out of New London in May of 1858 and returned in May of 1870, so 12 years away. But they didn't even have the same captain by the time they returned. The captains had changed over time. The biggest problem was water. So when you were out, they could carry a lot of food, but they had to resupply with water, you know, roughly every two months or so. The captain was constantly thinking about where can I get fresh water? What ports along the west coast of South America have rivers or creeks nearby? What islands of the South Pacific have mountains tall enough to catch rain cloud. And it's so interesting because in, you know, modern ships, uh, nuclear submarines, cruise ships, even small sailing vessels, most of them have water makers so they can turn salt water into fresh water so they don't have to worry about it. But in the 19th century, they were constantly thinking about fresh water. And sometimes captains would choose to go to an island for fresh water that had a reputation for cannibals because they would think that that would keep the men from deserting. And that was an issue. Can you talk about that aspect? The sailors were constantly running away. And partly that is because the average age of whalemen was 19. And so most of them were not married. They didn't have families. Islands would seem really appealing. The women are beautiful. The food is is lovely. I want to be there. But then people would be ashore and then they would get homesick because people didn't speak their language. The food might seem really fun for a while, but after a while, you're like, I, I just want meat and potatoes. I don't want, you know, pineapple. The cultures were really different. So then people would join another whale ship. On one of the Morgan's voyages, 107 different men served, even though there was never more than about 35 men on board at one time. Now, there are, if I understand it correctly, on the Morgan, two decks. Could you tell me what's on each deck and, and kind of what the Morgan looks like in that regard? The upper, you know, the open deck is, you know, open to the air, and that is where the wheel is that the vessel was steered with. That's where the windlass is. You pump on the windlass, and that's how you lifted that piece of blubber that could weigh up to a ton. That's where the cooking of the whales were done in big, huge pots on a fireplace. Then the deck below has two functions. One is that's where people slept, and the after part of the ship, the captain slept, and the officers And then in the front is where the ordinary sailors left. And between the two of them, there was the blubber room. And that's where the big sheets of blubber were cut into smaller pieces. Because the deck was so full, they had to cut the blubber up in the between decks. And then there's actually another layer below that. That's the hold that's just filled with barrels. And when they first left, they would be filled with barrels of water and food. And over time, hopefully, as you cut more whales... As you're eating up the food, you're starting to fill barrels with whale oil. What kind of danger did the Morgan and its crews face over their 37 commercial excursions from pirates? Piracy really 
isn't a big thing by um, the time the Morgan's sailing, but she did face danger from some of the inhabitants of the islands that they visited. Maybe the crew that had been there before had been nasty, had kidnapped some of the men to work as uh, sailors or kidnapped some of the women. So sometimes when a later ship would go in, they might uh, react against the ship. And then during the time of the Civil War, it became very dangerous. Many whale ships, especially in the Northern Pacific, were attacked by the Shenandoah, which was a Confederate raider that went after whale ships because they were carrying oil, which was extremely valuable, made a lot of money. So over the course of the whaling industry in 200 years, we managed to build and go through about 2,700 whaling boats, and only one has survived to this day. I mean, that's pretty remarkable, and it's here in Connecticut. Many of the other ships, they would be lost on reefs, lost in storms, sunk by whales, burnt at sea, or they might have come back. And as the whaling industry declined, they might have just been left at a dock where they kind of slowly crumbled up. The Morgan started whaling in 1841, and it whaled until 1921. By the time its last voyage was made, people were beginning to realize that almost all the whale ships were gone. So there was this big dedicated effort to save the Morgan. Without this effort, it may have gone the way of the other uh, ships as well, and in fact was kind of dry docked for a while on the beach on somebody's estate. Can you tell us that part of the boat's history? So there was a guy named Colonel Green. He collected all kinds of different things, trains, buildings, a Zeppelin. And he had an estate near New Bedford. And he put the the Morgan in a bed of sand and gravel after the end of whaling. And then when he died, he didn't leave anything in his will to take care of the Morgan. There was an appeal that went to the people of Massachusetts. And by 1941, they couldn't get anybody to take care of it up in uh, New Bedford. And that's when it came to the museum. And then Mystic Seaport put it into a bed of sand and gravel at the museum because 1941, of course, is the beginning of the Second World War. But at the end of the war, there was sort of this entrance in American entrepreneurship. And people were proud of being American. Americans had won the war. And the Morgan kind of came to symbolize more and more that sort of pride, the qualities that were considered American. The parts that have survived the best are the parts that are underwater. She has her full keel from 1841 when it was built. The lower frames, most of them survived. That part was always down in the salt water. The salt in the water was a preservative, and that's what saved it. But from the water line up, much of that was uh, rebuilt, even while it was still whaling, and then has had to be rebuilt since. So in 2014, after you know a multi-million dollar renovation, The Charles W. Morgan sailed again, and you were one of the crew members. I don't know if you're able to put into words the emotion, the passion, the feeling of what it was like to step on board that deck. Please tell us that story. The big restoration was occurring in the early 2000s. One day, Steve White, who was the president of Mystic Seaport Museum at the time, and he told us 
that we were going to sail the ship. And I have to say there was a dead silence amongst the staff. And then you heard people whispering to each other, did he just say we're going to sail the ship? There was so much excitement. And of course, by the time he announced it to us, he had worked with the Board of Trustees and with the United States Coast Guard to make sure it was something we could do. But that just changed everything. There was so much excitement about around it. You know, donors became more interested, the general public, the vice president at the time, Susan Funk, she was bound and determined that not only would there be a professional crew to sail the ship, but that every uh, staff member at the museum would get a chance. So we could apply to be a crew member, which is what I did, or for other people who weren't interested in climbing aloft and setting the sails, you also just got a chance to sail. So everybody, the night watchmen, the people who did the accounting, the cleaners, everybody who worked for the museum I got a chance to be out for at least one day. It was just an amazing thing. I was in a whaleboat rowing behind the Morgan as it went down the river for the first time in May of 2014. And we thought that was the most amazing day. Then we thought the you know first sea trial was the most amazing day. Then we thought the most incredible day was coming into New Bedford, where, which is where it was built. That was unbelievable. There were helicopters overhead. There were people lining the hurricane wall at the entrance to New Bedford. And then the whole state pier was filled with people. But I have to say the most, most incredible day was when we were off of Provincetown and we actually lowered a whale boat. We were surrounded by humpback whales and we actually rode amongst them. And at first I was rowing and I was just like, we will have this moment for the rest of our lives. And then I was like, those whales are really big. So when the, when the mate told us to come back, we were we were kind of ready because the whales were, they're just so huge when you're in a small whale boat. I have managed to take a whale boating excursion off of Provincetown, and I know the size of the whales you're talking about. You're very brave to have done that. When Mary Kay steps foot into Mystic Seaport and sees the Charles W. Morgan at the Chubb Wharf, what goes through your mind? I'm just astounded. I look at that ship and I can't believe it exists. And and I can't believe how beautiful it is. I've spent my whole life climbing on that ship and setting sails on it and sailing on it and thinking about it. And I personally, as a Herman Neville scholar, just love that ship because um, the Morgan was built only seven miles away from and only seven months after the ship that Neville sailed on, the Akushnet. So it's almost exactly like the ship that Melville walked the deck on. I'm just always in awe of that ship. Well, that wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. You know, whaling is now illegal in most countries around the world, including the United States. There are, however, three countries that still do it, Iceland, Norway, and Japan, and they kill about a thousand whales a year. I want to thank our guest for today's program, the incomparable Mary Kay Burkaw Edwards of Mystic Seaport Museum in Mystic, Connecticut. Well, the answer to this week's trivia question, and the question itself was, if I'm talking about Belltown, what Connecticut town am I referring to? Well, the answer is East Hampton, Connecticut. It's known as Belltown, and it's where the overwhelming majority of bells in the United States have been made over the past couple of centuries. 
And now, there's just one bell-making company left, with the nearly 200-year-old Bevan Bell still churning them out. We're going to have the chief operating officer with us next week, Cece Bevan. And wait until you hear literally what a difference there is in the huge variety of bells they make. She's going to ring them during the episode. Remember, please tell your friends, family members, and colleagues about the podcast and have them follow along each week. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. (laughs) 